High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. And this is another episode in our ongoing series about the experiences of famous people during times of war or Star Wars. Today we're going to start to transition from talking about the experiences of women in Hollywood during World War II to talking about the experiences during the same era of some famous men. We'll make that transition by talking about an actress and a director who worked together just once on a film many involved considered to be the nadir of their careers. And yet, separately, this actress and director have left behind legacies that loom large over Hollywood to this day. And for a few years, they were in love with each other. One of the few film directors who was such a big personality that he'd become a thinly veiled character in other people's novels and movies, John Huston took directing assignments in far-flung locales just because he wanted to visit those places. He drank prodigiously 
and slept with virtually every woman he ever met, regardless of his marital status or hers. He had a tendency to overuse the phrase, just fine, to the point that once, whilst walking down Fifth Avenue in New York, Houston came across a man who had apparently just dropped dead in the street. Houston knelt down, took the corpse's hand, held it for a bit, and then said to the just-arriving paramedics, He's going to be just fine. He lived both as though there was no tomorrow, and as if he was always mentally a few steps ahead of the present. He'd throw everything he had at a film until he figured out what his next film would be, and then he'd become impatient to move on. His close friend and frequent collaborator, Humphrey Bogart, said this made Houston murder to work with for the last three weeks of shooting. A similar restlessness afflicted his romantic relationships, making him absolutely impossible to live with once the first flush of romance was gone. As Olivia de Havilland learned. By the time Houston and de Havilland met, Olivia, or Livy as her friends called her, had already co-starred in the most successful film of all time, Gone with the Wind. She was already known to have a difficult relationship with her younger sister, the actress Joan Fontaine, and she had already had an affair with one of Houston's few rivals in the Hollywood masculinity sweepstakes, Errol Flynn. After Houston and de Havilland got together, while he was off making groundbreaking and controversial war documentaries, Livy stayed home and waged a battle of her own, suing Warner Brothers to stop their exploitation of her labor and to get out of their stranglehold on her future. Join us, won't you? For the story of Olivia de Havilland and John Houston. This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on MUBI is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover. Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from Inland, Oregon, who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride. John Houston hated Los Angeles. Always had. He thought it rotted, interesting men's souls. When his father, the actor Walter Houston, signed a deal to leave the New York theater to make his first Hollywood film in 1929, the then 23-year-old John sent Walter a telegram. Understand you've signed contract to appear in 12 pictures annually for 10 years. Stop. When you're going to get time to practice acting. Stop. In his 20s, in the 1920s, John went to Mexico to recuperate from an ear operation on the advice and bankroll of his father. When Walter's money ran out, John, who was becoming an accomplished equestrian, took a job with the Mexican cavalry, essentially for free room and board. He stayed for a year, playing with guns and whores, and learned only two words of Spanish. Dos equis. At the end of the year, Houston returned to the States, 
and on a whim, he married his high school sweetheart, Dorothy Harvey, and absconded with her to Greenwich Village. He started writing for the New York Evening Graphic, a trashy tabloid that also employed his mother, and eventually, John followed his father west, finding work as a freelance screenwriter and finding ample opportunity to disrespect his marriage vows with his pick of starlets. He tried to appease Dorothy by buying her a new wardrobe, billed to Walter, but John's repeatedly betrayed wife was already on the downslope of alcoholic despondency, and they divorced in 1933. Dorothy went on to marry a doctor named George Hodel, who is nowadays considered by many to be the probable murderer of the Black Dahlia. Houston started drinking more heavily around this time, and in 1933, he got into a car crash. His then-girlfriend, Zita Johan, co-star with Boris Karloff in The Mummy, was in the passenger seat, and her face was disfigured in the crash. A few months later, Houston crashed his car again, this time hitting and killing a dancer named Tosca Rulian. Houston was exonerated by a grand jury, but his dad thought he'd better get out of town for a while. So Walter got him a temporary job at Gaumont Studios in London. After three months, the job ended, and John Houston went broke. He claimed he was sleeping in Hyde Park and would have continued this way if he hadn't simultaneously won 100 pounds in the Irish lottery and also sold a screenplay for 500 pounds. Rather than using this windfall for passage home, Houston moved on to Paris, where he tried to become a painter. He gave that up in 1935, returning to Hollywood to make another go at the industry. In 1937, Houston impulsively married an Irish woman he met in Chicago, named Leslie, and then he collaborated with Howard Koch on the screenplay for the Betty Davis film Jezebel, directed by one of Houston's best friends in Hollywood, William Wyler. Houston would write or co-write five additional films over the next few years, including the Gary Cooper hit Sergeant York and High Sierra, starring Ida Lupino and Humphrey Bogart. The complex characterization Houston wrote for Bogart's character, a criminal with a heart of gold, helped the actor become the star that he would soon become by showing Bogart doing things that bad guys do while connecting to the audience like a good guy. Bogart would become one of Houston's best friends and the star of many of his films, and Houston came to see Bogart as his kind of on-screen alter ego, insisting that he cast him over and over again. Not because I liked Bogart, but because that face and voice and figure fitted in with the kinds of stories that I like to write and make. Houston had an unusual clause written into his screenwriting contract that would allow him to do something almost unheard of for a movie writer at that time, to pick one of his scripts to direct himself. He chose The Maltese Falcon, and with it managed to make his directorial debut in as close to an independent spirit as was possible in Hollywood in the 1940s. He wrote the script himself, cast it with his best friend, Bogart, and with one of the actresses with whom he was sleeping, Mary Astor. He directly transcribed the Dashiell Hammett novel onto the screen wherever possible, with unusually little pushback from the censors. The film came in on time and under budget, made a lot of money, and successfully transformed John Huston from a screenwriter to a director, and sometimes a writer-director. His ambitions may or may not have been honorable, 
According to one of his biographers, when asked why he wanted to direct, Houston answered, Because the director gets to fuck the star. He later refined his position. If the actress is beautiful, screw her. If she isn't, you present her with a valuable painting she will not understand. Olivia de Havilland was beautiful. Born in Tokyo in 1916, she had been working since she was 18, having landed the part of Hermia in Max Reinhardt's Hollywood Bowl production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, and from there she was signed to a contract by Warner Brothers and given the female lead opposite Errol Flynn in Captain Blood. Her persona was of a sweet-natured beauty and something of a goody two-shoes. Most of the time, it seemed like she was slotted into Errol Flynn movies so that the girls dragged on dates by their boyfriends— wouldn't spend the entire movie totally bored. In 1939, her relationship with Warner Brothers started to sour. She had been loaned out by her home studio to star in David O. Selznick's Gone with the Wind, and that film had given de Havilland her first opportunity to show that she could do more than look pretty in four or five close-ups punctuating a boy's adventure yarn. When she came back from the Gone with the Wind shoot, as if to put her in her place, Jack Warner cast her in The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex as Betty Davis's lady-in-waiting, putting Olivia's name below the title and pairing Davis with Olivia's usual on-screen love, Errol Flynn. I got so bored, she said later, so bored that it just got me to the point where I nearly had a nervous breakdown. She also started suffering physical ailments, headaches, swollen legs, that she attributed to her unhappiness starring in bad movies. Meanwhile, her sister, Joan Fontaine, whose acting prowess Livy thought little of, was getting good parts from her studio chief, David O. Selznick. But Jack Warner's philosophy was that if it wasn't broke, and it wasn't broke, all of de Havilland's films made money, then there was no reason to fix it. So Livy continued co-starring in Errol Flynn films, And after years of rejecting his advances, she began seeing Flynn outside of the studio, too. But both of those things were about to change. In This, Our Life was supposed to be just another day at the studio. The film was built around a sister rivalry that in some ways echoed Olivia's relationship with her own sister— On screen, Betty Davis had the meaty role of bad girl to Olivia's mousy good sister. Before the action of the film even really gets going, Betty has stolen Olivia's husband, driven the guy to suicide, and moved back into the family mansion. When Betty kills a child in a drunk driving accident, she frames the black son of the family's cook, a good boy who's studying to become a lawyer, for the crime. Ultimately, found out and fleeing the police... Betty Davis crashes her car again, and this time she dies. Clearly, once again, it was Betty Davis, and not Olivia de Havilland, who had everything to do in this movie. And yet somehow, Olivia started getting all the close-ups. Olivia later said, The relationship between a director and an actress is almost sexual. It's the most intimate kind of collaboration. It's a unique experience. She certainly had a unique experience with the director of In This Our Life. The director of In This Our Life, as you've probably guessed, was John Huston. 
It was his second assignment behind the camera after the Maltese Falcon, and it was something of a promotion for him, a prestige project based on a best-selling novel full of Warner Brothers' biggest stars. It was really not my kind of picture at all, he said later. More of a soap opera. But here was a chance to work in the big time, so I did it, because it was good for my career. Balls. Once you never do anything, that's good for one's career. Every time I've done that, I've fallen right on my ass. If Houston was knocked on his ass during the production of In This Our Life, the movie wasn't entirely to blame. From the moment he and Livy de Havilland first saw each other, they couldn't keep their eyes off of one another. Houston liked de Havilland because, in contrast to her sweetest pie persona, she was actually ballsy. When she wanted something, she asked for it, even demanded it. And she wanted John Houston. She was fascinated by his knowledge of literature and painting, and she shared his romanticism. But he also gave her a project to fix. She said later, I always felt that John was ridden by witches, and that if I could only know the names of these witches, perhaps I could help him. He seemed to be pursued by something destructive. Her desire to help him, slash her undisguised intensity of feeling for him, may have been, in the long run, the worst way for Olivia to try to worm her way into Houston's heart. John Houston was a hunter. He didn't like it when women were too available. The more a woman showed her love for him, the more he was likely to look for love elsewhere. As Houston once said about himself, The trouble with me is that I am forever and eternally bored. If I'm threatened with boredom, why, I'll run like a hare. But in the short term, Houston was so drawn to Olivia that the dailies blatantly favored her over Betty Davis, whom Houston had apparently declined to direct altogether and who was giving an oversized, completely unmodulated performance as a result. Jack Warner figured out what was going on pretty quickly, and he called Houston into his office for a talking to. Houston claimed he was getting from Davis the exact performance he wanted— He thought Betty Davis had, as he put it, A demon within her which threatens to break out and eat everybody. The studio confused it with overacting. Over their objections, I let the demon go. Since he got nowhere trying to discipline the director, Warner then invited both Betty and Olivia to a screening room and made them watch some dailies so that they could both see how Houston's hard-on for Olivia was ruining the film. Sufficiently baited... Betty went ballistic, and Houston was forced to do reshoots. After filming In This Our Life, de Havilland refused to report for a screen test opposite Errol Flynn for a film called Saratoga Trunk, and she was forcibly removed from the film by Warner Brothers. De Havilland has never talked about this, but one of her biographers insists she had a sudden, mysterious falling out with Flynn. Maybe, after working with and falling in love with Houston, she just didn't want to play second fiddle to Robin Hood yet again. At the 1942 Oscars, de Havilland, who was nominated for a film called Hold Back the Dawn, put on a good show in a bad situation. When her sister-slash-frenemy Fontaine, who had starred in Alfred Hitchcock's Suspicion, beat Livy in the Best Actress category, Olivia put on a rousing show of support— shouting, We've got it! when Joan's name was called. 
John Huston, nominated for two awards himself for writing Sergeant York and the Maltese Falcon, showed up with his wife, but reportedly spent the night blowing kisses to Olivia across the room. Everyone in Hollywood knew that Houston was spending every night at Olivia's Los Feliz home, John Houston's wife included. Tabloids took Livy's side in the affair, breathlessly proclaiming that John's marriage was all but legally through and predicting that Olivia would be the third Mrs. Houston soon enough. This is certainly what Livy thought was going to happen. What Houston thought was going to happen isn't clear. But soon enough, war got in the way. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else, and they ask me how I feel about it, and then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel, and a lot of the time my answer is nope, because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small, When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on. Or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash YMRT. John Huston had been preparing to film Across the Pacific, a reunion film for his Maltese Falcon stars, When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, Houston immediately enlisted, but it would be several months before he got orders to report, so Across the Pacific went into production. Then, in the last week of shooting, Houston was called up and given just four days to report to Washington for assignment. Legend has it that, as a prank, Houston staged the beginning of the film's climax, with Bogart strapped to a chair, absolutely surrounded by hostile armed Japanese with no evident route of escape, and then told the incoming substitute director, Bogey will know how to get out. According to that incoming director, Vincent Sherman, the state in which Houston was leaving the film behind may have been less intentional. Sherman said Jack Warner told him to cut Houston some slack. The poor guy's having other troubles, Warner said. His wife comes in one door as Olivia de Havilland is walking out the other, and sometimes he doesn't know what he's doing. Houston would be back and forth between Los Angeles, New York, and various war zones for the next three years. It was for Olivia a painful separation, but she also had other things to think about. Around this time, with her WB contract about to run out, 
De Havilland was ready to move on to another studio. But Warner Brothers was able to extend her servitude to them using the concept of suspension. We've talked about this before in terms of two other Warner Brothers stars, Humphrey Bogart and Betty Davis. Basically, when a star refused to take a role that was assigned to them, often because they knew the material was bad and would please neither critics nor audiences and would thus endanger their career longevity, then the performer's contract would be suspended until another film was found that they were willing to do. Studios, particularly Warner Brothers, would also use suspensions to save money, essentially putting their players on unpaid furlough between projects to limit the studio's overall payroll. They would also occasionally offer big stars subpar material intentionally, knowing that the star would choose to go on suspension rather than appear in a clearly bad movie. But even if the suspension wasn't his or her choice, the star still had to make up the suspended time at the end of their contract. So in Olivia's case, at the end of her seven-year deal, she was contractually obligated to work for Warner Brothers or for other studios on loan out from Warner Brothers with Warner Brothers negotiating the terms of that work for another 25 weeks because that's the period of time she had racked up over the course of her various suspensions. It was customary for studios to use suspension as a way of locking their hottest stars down so that they couldn't renegotiate their contracts or leave for another studio. At the time, there were no rules or laws in place to stop a studio from using suspension to extend a player's contract indefinitely. At first, de Havilland accepted the extra 25 weeks, but her second assignment during this period was a loan out to Columbia, and when Livy reported for work and learned that the film's script would not be ready in time for the film's start date, She walked off the Columbia lot and walked into her lawyer's office. Her lawyer told her that the California state statute on personal service contracts seemed to limit such servitude to seven years. Not seven years of tallied labor minus who knows how many suspensions, but seven chronological years. So Olivia decided to take Warner Brothers to court. Now, you may remember that Betty Davis had already tried this in the 1930s, but she had attempted to challenge a California law from England. And when that didn't work, she came back and did what she was told. If de Havilland's case failed, that would be pretty much it for her in the movie business. Warner Brothers would punish her by only offering her movies they knew she wouldn't want to do, thus seeing to it that she never got out of her contract and would maybe never even work again. At the very first court hearing on November 4th, 1943, Olivia took the witness stand. Warner Brothers' attorney got up in her face, accusing her of having an attitude problem and even suggesting in open court that she had rejected one of the movies assigned to her for reasons having to do with an illicit affair. The defense claimed Olivia had come back from her Gone with the Wind loan out with her nose in the air and that suddenly nothing was good enough for her. Olivia denied this, although in some sense, it's sort of accurate. Gone with the Wind had made her conscious of the fact that the properties being offered to her by her home studio were pretty much garbage. As she put it, I cannot, after Gone with the Wind, do something I don't believe in. The thing is, because a star's staying power was dependent on their box office viability, not wanting to star in garbage wasn't snobbery, it was self-preservation. 
The court ruled in Olivia's favor, declaring that state law limited contracts to seven calendar years, not seven years cobbled together over a decade or more via a studio's self-serving creative accounting. Unable to fathom a change in their working and hiring methods this radical, Warner Brothers appealed, and in so doing, blacklisted every studio in town from hiring de Havilland. Unable to work, de Havilland went on USO tours. On her second day entertaining troops in Fiji, she caught a fever and ended up spending six weeks in a military hospital, recuperating from viral pneumonia. Meanwhile, John had been shipped out to the Aleutian Islands in the Bering Sea between Russia and Alaska to lead a crew making a documentary about the effort to build a base for air combat on an island called Adak. Adak was an extremely desolate island outpost, often completely shrouded in fog. The soldiers there had nothing to do but take B-24s on practice runs and wait for orders. There was a lot of crushing boredom punctuated by fleeting terror. On Houston's first flight in a B-24, the brakes failed and the plane was forced to crash land on a wet runway. As soon as the plane finally stopped, someone shouted, Get out before the bombs go off! But the pilot had been knocked unconscious in the crash, and Houston wanted to film it. I remember trying to get a shot and saying to myself, Good man, Houston. Nerves of steel. But just as I was congratulating myself, I began to shake uncontrollably. I put the camera down and ran. And the bombs didn't even go off. Houston would try to capture this emotional seesaw between seemingly endless waiting and sudden threats of death in his film Report from the Aleutians. In late 1942, Houston and his footage were sent to New York's Astoria Studios for editing. And there, while still married, and still carrying on enough of a relationship with Livy to convince her that he'd come back and marry her, Houston began a number of affairs with other women. The most significant was with Marietta Fitzgerald, who many have suggested was the only woman Houston ever really loved, perhaps because she never demanded that Houston marry her. In fact, she didn't want to divorce her own husband. There was also Lenny Lynn, an actress who remembered Houston mournfully showing off pictures of Olivia, and Doris Lilly, a gossip columnist and girl about town, who was one of Truman Capote's inspirations for Breakfast at Tiffany's. Doris Lilly admitted that she initially went after Houston because she knew about his relationship with Olivia de Havilland. Doris said, quote, I wanted to get what she got. And then there was an unnamed Canadian woman, a journalist who Houston was about to invite on a weekend trip to Scotland, until one night at dinner she launched into an anti-Semitic tirade about how maybe Hitler was a little bit extreme, but really, wouldn't it be better for the whole world if he did round up all the Jews and blow them up? John Houston let her finish, and then he said, You, madame, are the blackest bitch I've ever encountered. The Canadian gal walked out, and went on to file a complaint to the American ambassador, claiming Officer John Houston had unduly insulted her. An investigation was launched and ended with the ambassador concluding that the Canadian gal was probably a Nazi spy and that Houston had done nothing wrong. Less controversial, at least at the time, 
was Houston's involvement in staging or recreating footage for two war documentaries. Staging aspects of the war that were too dangerous to film live was apparently a fairly commonplace thing during World War II, to the point that an officer named James Feichny wrote a memo, which was later retracted under protest from Houston, accusing enlisted filmmakers like Houston of, quote, attempting to reenact the war on a Hollywood scale. What's interesting is that Houston fully acknowledged his participation in one incident of reenactment, but not the other. The first incident took place right after he returned from the Aleutians, when President Roosevelt asked the Signal Corps to show him footage of the invasion of North Africa. That footage didn't exist. It had been lost when the ship carrying the film had been sunk. But no one wanted FDR to find out the only footage of the invasion had been lost, so the decision was made to assign Houston and Frank Capra to recreate the lost footage. They staged an entire battle, with the Mojave Desert and Orlando, Florida substituting for Tunisia. Houston came clean about this in his autobiography, An Open Book, in which he called the project, quote, So transparently false, I hated to have anything to do with it. Houston didn't come clean about the other incident. John Houston officially directed three war documentaries, and the second, The Battle of San Pietro, was almost completely staged for the camera, long after the actual battle was over. In October 1943, Houston traveled to the Italian town of the title, and he and his crew filmed the carnage of a horrible fight, which so depleted the Allied forces that thousands of reinforcements had to be sent to replace the dead. There's one shot in the film where the camera jostles as the cinematographer ducks to avoid real mortar fire. Houston spent two dangerous days in San Pietro and then went to Naples to drink with Humphrey Bogart, who was there entertaining the troops. Houston returned to San Pietro months later with a shooting script, and using real soldiers and residents of San Pietro as his actors, attempted to recreate a battle that had been declared too dangerous for him to film while it was happening. The film has a title card at the very end, noting that, quote, For the purpose of continuity, a few of these scenes were shot before or after the actual battle. Whatever continuity is supposed to mean in this case. But in his autobiography, Houston says nothing about the San Pietro reenactments. Instead, he writes boastfully about how the film was protested by Army Brass, who thought it was not too fake-looking, but actually too visceral, that it would dissuade young men from joining up. One general said that the problem was that the film could be interpreted as being anti-war. And Houston said, or Houston says he said, Gentlemen, if I ever make anything other than an anti-war film, I hope you take me out and shoot me. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. 
and it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Whether or not he filmed all of it as it was really happening, Houston had been close enough to enough real death and destruction in Italy that by the time he once again returned to New York for editing, he was verifiably emotionally disturbed. He started carrying a pistol, and when he couldn't sleep, he would walk around Central Park in the middle of the night with it. Secretly hopeful that some hapless bastard would try to jump me. Emotionally, I was still in Italy in the combat zone. I couldn't sleep because there were no guns going. And then he heard that Ray Scott, one of the cameramen who had shot the documentary in the Aleutians and had his own trouble adjusting to civilian life, had been locked up in a psychiatric facility after getting caught drunkenly shooting his gun in the air when he was supposed to be on guard duty. Houston went to visit him and managed to talk the powers that be out of giving Scott electroshock treatments. As the war was ending, Houston was asked to make a film about the treatment the veterans were getting at psychiatric facilities. In Let There Be Light, the best and most cinematic of Houston's war documentaries, the director follows a single group of patients through their eight weeks of inpatient treatment, and he documents the use of hypnosis, drugs, and group therapy to cure psychosomatic ailments like limb paralysis, tremors, and stuttering. This film has a title card insisting that no reenactments were used. But as with the Battle of San Pietro, the army thought the film would be bad for business. And before the first scheduled screening of Let There Be Light at MoMA in New York, the print was confiscated. It went unseen until 1980, when the MPAA's Jack Valenti successfully lobbied for its release. By the fall of 1943, Olivia was hearing plenty of stories about John's exploits away from her. Mutual friends would confide in her that they'd been out drinking with John in London, and at the beginning of the night, he'd be all like, I can't live without Olivia. But then by closing time, he'd be carried out of the bar dead drunk by another woman. He was also constantly in the New York papers, photographed out and about with Doris Lilly. He expected total fidelity from Olivia, but he couldn't even be discreet about his dalliances in return. As Livy put it, he had no self-discipline, and he didn't have much taste either. So eventually, Olivia started a counter-affair of her own with Major Joseph McKeon of the Army Air Corps. This was a tabloid dream. Hollywood's lily-white beauty, known for her on-screen romances with movie swashbuckler Errol Flynn, moving on to a real-life hero. In 1944, McKeon was shot down over Germany and returned to Hollywood for his recovery. His relationship with Livy continued throughout the war, but she repeatedly refused to marry him. Perhaps because she was holding out for John. Warner Brothers spent nearly two years appealing Livy's suit. 
finally, in February 1945, the California Supreme Court upheld the initial decision. Warner Brothers now had no recourse. They, and all of the studios who had used suspensions to control their talent, had lost. Olivia de Havilland was finally free, and the law had been clarified. Seven years was seven years, period. This became known as the de Havilland decision, and it's still in effect and invoked today. Two months after the court decision, Houston's wife, Leslie, finally filed for divorce. He was now free to marry, but his relationship with Olivia had frittered away. It seems as though she had just grown tired of waiting for him to come back to her. Then, in late April 1945, at a party at David Selznick's house, Errol Flynn and John Houston got into one of Hollywood history's most infamous drunken fistfights. There's much dispute as to how or why this fight started. Doris Lilly, the young socialite who, like de Havilland, had dated both Flynn and Houston, insists that they were fighting over her. Errol Flynn's wife claims that Houston, who had returned from Italy not long earlier and was still suffering some kind of undiagnosed PTSD, had said something snarky about Flynn's lack of military service. But most reports contend that Flynn started it by saying something insulting to Houston about Olivia. In his no-doubt exaggerated account of the incident, Houston contends that in response to Flynn's comment, whatever it was, he said, That's a lie. And even if it weren't a lie, only a son of a bitch would repeat it. Both men fancied themselves to be boxers, so it didn't take much for a disagreement to get physical. The odds were not in Houston's favor. Flynn had 25 pounds on him, and of the two contenders, Houston was the drunker man by far. Flynn's blows kept landing, and Houston kept falling down. But the fight went on for a full hour, and eventually, Houston rallied. In the end, Flynn went straight to the hospital, and Houston passed out. He woke up the next morning and realized that a ring on Flynn's hand had ripped his face to shreds. And so he went to a different hospital than the one Flynn was in, in an effort to avoid photographers. But it was useless. In the next morning's papers, the news that Mussolini had been assassinated was pushed to page two. John Houston's face was on the cover. He was pushed off the next day by reports of Hitler's suicide. While working on Let There Be Light, Houston asked Marietta Fitzgerald to marry him, but she said no. A few months later, at a dinner party, Houston met Olivia's friend and Gone with the Wind co-star, Evelyn Keyes. And in August 1946, the pair had too many martinis at dinner one night and ended up getting married that very evening in Las Vegas. Completely coincidentally, I'm sure, that very same month, Olivia suddenly married the guy she was dating at the time, writer Marcus Goodrich. Houston attempted to rekindle their romance several times over the years, but Olivia couldn't buy in again. She knew too well how it would go. She later said, He was a man I wanted to marry, and knowing him was a powerful experience, one I thought I would never get over. I watched him bring great destruction into the lives of other women. Maybe he was the great love of my life. Yes, 
It probably was. After the war, John Huston focused almost chiefly on using Hollywood fiction films to document the experiences of men in the midst of dangerous situations. Of course, this description applies rather neatly to movies like The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Moby Dick, and The Man Who Would Be King, but it could also apply to, say, The African Queen, or even Annie, movies in which one danger faced by men is represented by women and children. The danger is that they could ask the men to give up their dangerous lives. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. On today's episode, we had a very special guest, Ryan Johnson, who played John Houston. Today's episode was written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes on our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please tell your friends any way that you can, and tell strangers by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night. You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss those lips. There's no tenderness like before in your face.